0: John chapter 18, we're going to read verses 1 down through verse 14. John chapter 18, verses 1 through 14. The Bible says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Then he asked them again, Whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spoke, Of those whom you gave me I have lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? Then the detachment of troops and the captains and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And they led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. This is God's word. The title of the message this morning is Arresting the Almighty. Arresting the Almighty. The 2013 movie, many of you may have seen it, Man of Steel, Superman surrenders himself to the enemy, and he allows himself to be arrested and handcuffed. The very idea of handcuffing Superman is ludicrous in and of itself. If you've seen the movie, there's a in the following scene, he lets his arms fall to his side and it's as if the handcuffs don't even exist. They just break apart in his hands. The idea that you would try to arrest and control and handcuff Superman is ridiculous. And yet in today's text, we find Jesus in a similar situation. These men Judas Iscariot and these officers and all of these people from the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin believe that they have Jesus. They are going to arrest him. They are going to control him. And yet we find in today's text, much like the movie, Man of Steel, Jesus is not arrested because he is forced to. Jesus is arrested because he allows himself to be arrested why does he do this? Why does Jesus allow himself to be arrested? You know, in spite of this altercation, John still paints for us a very clear picture of what Jesus can do for us, who Jesus is, and what Jesus came to earth to do. We've seen in the entire gospel of John, and we've come chapter by chapter, verse by verse through this entire book. And in every single passage, we find that there is the gospel in every single paragraph that John pens. And it is no different in this passage that we have before us today. John paints a very clear picture of the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. It is the very purpose of the gospel. He wrote in chapter 20 that these things I have written to you so that you can believe on the name of the Son of God. The world would not be able to contain all of the things and all of the books that Jesus did, but we have this one book of all that we need to know about Jesus. In today's Passage. We find that Jesus demonstrates his power, he demonstrates his compassion, and he demonstrates his submission to his father's plan while being arrested by none other but than one of his followers. What does that mean for us today? We have this story about Jesus being arrested and led away, but what does that mean for us? What this means for us is that Jesus is worthy of our worship and acceptance because he displays his power in this passage And I want to walk through this passage with you this morning, and let's look at how Jesus is worthy of our worship and acceptance by looking at these three statements about Jesus in this text. The first one I see is this. Jesus demonstrates his almighty power. In this text, Jesus demonstrates his almighty power. Look at verse number one. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the book Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples The first thing that we see Jesus doing in this passage is he's done giving what we call the farewell discourse in John chapter 17. He has finished talking to his disciples at the last supper table. He says, let's go, guys, to the Garden of Gethsemane. He goes out, and what is not recorded in between chapters 17 and 18 is found in the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Jesus spends some time in prayer asking his father to Uh, Let this cup pass from him, if it is all possible. Nevertheless, the famous words, not my will, but thine be done. And so we come to this altercation, this face-off between Judas Iscariot and Jesus. Judas comes with lethal force in verse number three. He says this, um, Then Judas, having received the detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. I just couldn't imagine the, the the mindset that was going through Judas's head here. How does in the world does he think that by having some weapons and some spears and swords is he going to command the Almighty creator of the universe to surrender? A bit ridiculous if you ask me. What's even more interesting to me is that this word detachment, he has a detachment of troops with him. This would have been a cohort, a detachment or a cohort of a legion of Roman soldiers. This would have been the 10th part of a legion of Roman soldiers. The word detachment used here means that he had up to, he could have had, I don't think he had this many, but he could have had at least 600 soldiers with him. 600 soldiers. He may have had 600 soldiers with him. The other gospels describe the great multitude that was with Judas Iscariot at the time of this altercation. We, We think that Uh, that Jesus might be able to be arrested if we have all of these soldiers with us. And if we demonstrate to Jesus just how powerful we are, we might be able to make the Son of God surrender. That's what Judas' mindset is at this point. The Old Testament also has a story. One commentator put it this way a sinless man in an appointed garden was about to do battle with Satan's representative. The first time this happened in the book of Genesis, the sinless man failed. The second time this would happen in John chapter 18, the second Adam, the son of God, the son of man, the Lamb of God, come to, come to take away the sins of the world. The second time a sinless man would meet the devil in a garden, he would not fail the test. Jesus intentionally comes into the Garden of Gethsemane, comes face-to-face with Judas and his entire cohort of soldiers, and does not resist. He allows himself to be arrested. He boldly steps forward. He asks Judas, who is seeking, he says in verse uh, uh, number four, he went forward and said to them, whom are you seeking? The first time Jesus asks this is in John chapter one, verse 38. He sees Philip and Andrew coming after him, and he turns around and he says to them, what are you seeking? He asks Judas the very same question, whom are you looking for? It's almost as if Jesus is giving Judas one last opportunity. In the other gospels, Jesus addresses Judas by the title friend. Jesus knew full well what was about to happen, but he was not willing to lose Judas until the very last moment. It's almost as if he's saying, I know why you're here, Judas, but I want to hear you say it for yourself. After having been with Jesus for three years, After seeing all the miracles that Jesus has done, all of the teachings, all of the things, all of the traveling that he has done with Jesus, still Judas decides to sell Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver, and he perhaps is clutching that bag even as he approaches Jesus during this time. Jesus then speaks to him in verse number five. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth, and Jesus says, I am he. I want you to look in your Bible there, if you have it in front of you, the word he. When he says, I am he, the word he is in italics, is it not? What does that mean? It means that in the original language, Jesus says this in the Greek, ego eimi, meaning I am. There is no he. He is implied, the translators thought fit to put that in there, but when Jesus says, "I am," it is the same I am that spoke to Moses out of the burning bush. It is the same "I am that spoke to Abraham. It is the same I am that now talks to Judas in this passage. And he asks, "Who are you seeking?" And they answer defiantly, "We're seeking Jesus of Nazareth." And Jesus responds with two words, "I am." What is the response? They fall backward. 600 soldiers, Judas Iscariot, the officers of the the temple of the guard of the Pharisees, all of them draw back and they fall backwards on their backs. Jesus demonstrates his power in this passage. They were not the ones arresting Jesus. No, perhaps in a figurative way, Jesus was the one arresting them. Jesus demonstrates here power and also restraint for while the very words of Jesus causes them to fall backwards on their backs yet they are not dead Jesus still shows restraint it is still before the crucifixion it is still not quite the 11th hour he has not yet been crucified they still have a chance to accept him before they reject him for all eternity because when Jesus comes back again in revelation 19:21 the next time that he speaks There will be nobody left standing at the Battle of Armageddon. Jesus speaks. It takes two words to level the playing field, so to speak. Jesus, in this first half, demonstrates his power. And because he demonstrates his power, he's worthy of worship. But secondly, I want us to look at this. Jesus demonstrates his enduring compassion. Jesus demonstrates his enduring compassion. The first thing that he does is he tells them to let his disciples go. Verse number eight, Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled, which he spoke of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. You know, if they had captured his disciples with them, there's a possibility they may have been tried and executed as well. They would not have wanted the disciples of Jesus to see their leader martyred for his teachings and then go start spreading the same exact teachings to start an uprising against the Sanhedrin. They would not have wanted that. They would have wanted to kill as many of his followers as possible so as to completely extinguish this movement that Jesus had started. And by letting his disciples leave, Jesus rescued them not only physically, but also spiritually. It's me that you want. Let them go. What a beautiful picture of the gospel. These disciples, they're sinners. They're weak in faith. They're about to forsake me, but don't capture them. It's me that you want. Kill me, arrest me, take me instead. There would be no collateral damage in Jesus' plan. Just like there are no souls in hell by accident, you have been given the opportunity to accept Christ or to pay for your own sins. He, Jesus, lets his disciples go and says to them, I've got this, guys. You don't need to worry about me. But he also demonstrates his compassion by healing one of his enemies. I've always been intrigued by this little detail in the story that's left here. In verse number 10, we see that Peter... Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. How many of you, your favorite disciple is Peter? Anybody? I find myself relating to Peter a whole lot. Peter, of course, is uh, gripped by emotion. He's seeing all of these soldiers uh, wanting to arrest this, this teacher, this person that he's loved for three years. And what does he do? He takes his sword, and some people believe that since it was the right ear of Malchus that was cut off, Peter actually sneaked up behind him and took a took a slice at him. However, he may have done it. Peter draws his sword. He lets loose, and he lets loose, and he's not really a great swordsman. He just manages to get Malchus's ear. Peter's like, "Don't worry, Jesus, I've got it. You don't have to worry about anybody. I'm gonna kill all these soldiers for you. All or nothing." That's Peter. Why is Malchus included in this story? I was thinking about this this week. And I found myself in Malchus. Maybe you can find yourself in Malchus. Malchus was a servant of the high priest. He was to be the high priest's ear. He was to report to the high priest everything that happened helping the high priest know that his problem was taken care of. Malchus came along with Judas. He came along with the officers. He came along with a detachment of these soldiers. And he perhaps has been uh, told by the high priest, he's seen Jesus teaching. He's been told by his boss that this is a dangerous man. He's threatening the Jewish way of life. If this man keeps talking, keeps preaching, the Roman government is going to come and they're going to extinguish us from our promised land. And so Malchus has got this patriotic spirit in him. He's obeying the orders of his boss. He's going to this garden. He's confronting this dangerous man that his, that his boss has told him about. He gets his ear sliced off by one of his followers. And as he's bending down in pain, seeing the blood pour from his face, he looks up, and who does he see? He sees Jesus. Looking at him, this dangerous man that they've told him about. And what does he do? Jesus, as is recorded in the other gospels, he touches his ear and he heals him. We are all Malchus this morning. Perhaps you're sitting here and you've been hurt by a follower of Jesus. Maybe you have some church hurt in your past. Perhaps somebody that says that they are a Christian has hurt you. They've said some mean words to you. They've stabbed you in the back, so to speak. Malchus knows that feeling well, and yet Jesus comes to you. This person that you thought was dangerous, this person that has been misrepresented by his followers... The person that has, that you've all you've ever known about him has been how dangerous he is, and yet you find him coming face to face with you in your moment, in your struggle, in your life. And what does he do? He doesn't cut off your other ear. He, he heals you. This would be the last miracle that Jesus does before dying on the cross. Jesus still stops everything. He reaches out. He heals Malchus. I cannot help but think that Malchus went away a believer that night. Could you imagine? He's there. He wants to do his master's bidding. He wants to rid the Jewish nation of this dangerous uh, preacher. And he comes away with a wound that is healed by the very person that he was told was dangerous. My friend, you may be here this morning. You may have some hurt in your past. You may have some struggles. You may have some fears. Some of them may have even been brought on by somebody that says that they're a Christian. I'm sorry that happened to you. But Jesus does not want you to continue to live apart from him. Jesus is pursuing you this morning. You may be here by accident. You may be here by, uh, you, it, this may be the second or third time you've been in church ever. But I'm here to tell you this morning, Jesus, just like he heals Malchus' ear, he is willing to take all of your sins, all of your hurts, all of your struggles, and all of your trials and difficulties, and he's willing to take them and forgive you and give you a new life in him. Jesus has the power to save you. There was a man named Nabil Qureshi. He was born in 1983 in San Diego to Pakistani Muslim uh, immigrants. His father was in the Navy, in the U.S. Navy. They moved many times before settling in Virginia. His parents were proud of him because he walked in the ways of Allah. He came from a long line of Muslim missionaries, and Islam was his way of life. It was all he knew until he had a roommate in college named David Wood. David Wood was a Christian. David Wood began to have a friendship with Nabil. Nabil would pray five times a day, and he finished reading the Quran at five years old. He would continue to pray and be devout through his college years, get a medical degree. But at 18 years old, for four years, he had David Wood in his room. Witnessing to him, telling him about the love of Jesus. And Nabil, after four years of debating with his roommate, back and forth, back and forth, Nabil finally read the Bible for himself and accepted Jesus Christ as his Savior. It did not cost him nothing either. His family disowned him, his family would have nothing to do with him, but Nabil graduated college as a Christian. And he knew he was more free than he had ever been before. In fact, you can read about his conversion story in his book that he wrote. It's called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. He unfortunately died a few years ago due to some stomach cancer. But his story lives on. And all through his life, practicing a religion that is antagonistic toward Jesus and Christianity. And yet, he comes face to face with Jesus with his roommate. Jesus demonstrates his enduring compassion to you this morning. But finally, I want you to see this morning, Jesus demonstrates his humble submission. I want you to look at verse number 11. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? Jesus was not here because it was His own plan to be here. Jesus was not here because He was uh, was powerless to do anything else. No, Jesus was here very specifically because He was submitting to His Father's will. This was all in the Father's plan. Peter, uh, Jesus tells Peter, "Stop, stop fighting, Peter. You're interfering with my plan." This plan, although it would save the world. It would not be easy. Jesus, as willingly submitted to the Father's plan, we find snippets of the plan in other parts of Scripture. Matthew 26, 53, Jesus uh, actually responds to Peter and he says, do you not think that I cannot now pray to my Father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? He says, Peter, we've got it handled, Peter. This is all in the plan. Put your sword into its sheath. Let me handle this. This was prophesied in the Old Testament in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53.5 53, says, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Jesus knew everything that was about to happen to him. And because he had to, I'm sorry, because he loved you, because he desires so much to have a relationship with you, He still submitted to his father's plan. Jesus wants a relationship with you so earnestly that he took your penalty on the cross that he was about to take here in the next chapter for your sins. So that way you and I can have a way to be with him forever. He submits to his father's plan, but he also submits to his captors in verse number 12. Then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Isaiah 53.7 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus willingly puts out his hands and he says, Put the handcuffs on, I'm ready to go with you wherever you want me to go. They arrested him. They bound him with chains, and they led him away, the Lamb of God, like a little animal, as if they were about to slaughter him. I was curious about why they led him to Annas first. Annas was the father-in-law to Caiaphas, and Caiaphas was the high priest. In fact, they may have been co-ruling as high priests at this time, as Matthew's gospel, I believe, tells us this. So there's a little bit of um, uh, insure, unsurety, uncertainty as to what Annas' role is in all of this. But I find it interesting that they led him to his house first. It was perhaps under Annas' reign as high priest that Jesus flipped over the tables in the temple in John chapter 2. It was into Annas' coffers that all of those money changes were putting a little bit of a cut, a little bit of a... Uh, a kickback to Annas's house and his, his bank accounts and all of his uh, benefits that he was getting from these money changers. It was Annas that was conveniently benefiting from all of the business that was happening in the temple. And so they bring him to Annas first, as if, I believe, Annas probably was the one that first told Caiaphas, you need to take care of this guy. They bring him to Annas first. Matthew Henry says in his, commenta- uh, his commentary, He thinks that Annas was not present at the trial that is going to follow because Annas had to attend early that morning in the temple to inspect the lambs that would be brought for Passover sacrifice. How fitting would it be that the very first lamb that he inspects, that Passover would be the lamb that would take away the sins of the world. I don't know why they brought Jesus to Annas' house first. Perhaps it was to gloat. Perhaps it was to tell, verify identification. I don't know why. But they brought him to the high priest first. And the Old Testament symbolism here must not be missed for us right here. They brought him as a lamb to the slaughter, to be inspected, to ensure there was no blemish in Jesus Christ. And then what did they do? They executed him later that day. The God of the universe submitted to his captors. He submitted to his father. He submitted to his captors in order to provide a way of salvation to you this morning, my friend. He submitted to his executors so you would not have to submit to eternal punishment. He submitted to this so that you would not have to. And he asks you now today, will you submit to him? Will you receive the free offer of salvation that he has for your life? Will you agree that your sin is the thing preventing you from having peace with God and that you are helpless and you are on your way to a Christless eternity in hell unless you believe that Jesus indeed offers you the forgiveness and the peace that you so earnestly desire? Will you trust him today? In September of 1943, during World War II, there was a little town called Torim Pietra, in Italy. The German soldiers had come through. They were occupying this town and they were loading their boxes of ammunition into a truck. And for some reason, one of the boxes of ammunition exploded and it killed two of the German soldiers. Well, the the soldiers were no doubt angry. The German commander comes and rounds up all the citizens of the town. He Believes that the ammunition boxes had been sabotaged by somebody in this small town, and he takes 22 of these citizens to question them. He believes it is one of these people that sabotaged the ammunition. And one of those citizens, his name was Salvo de Quisto. He was a police officer. He was he was forced by these uh, Nazis to find out which ones of these people had sabotaged the box of ammunition. Salvo goes and questions all the people. He very quickly ascertains that this was a complete accident. Nobody had, in fact, messed with the boxes of ammunition. It was just an accident. And he goes back and he tells, he tries to tell the German commander, you've got the wrong people here. It was just an accident. That none of these people, as far as I can tell, is guilty of messing with your equipment. Well, of course, the German commander does not believe him. And so he then says, okay, if you cannot find out the person that... Uh, sabotaged our ammunition then all of you are going to die for it and he began to have them dig their own graves and as they were digging Salvo heard the crying the weeping of the people that were uh, shoveling away the dirt and he could not ignore it so he told the German commander it was me I did it I acted alone I was the one that sabotaged your box of ammunition let these people go. Now, Salvo hadn't done anything, but he knew that if he did not do something, then these people would die for something that they did not do. Salvo was also innocent. And surprisingly enough, the German commander believes Salvo. He lets the 21 other people go, and he executes Salvo by firing squad shortly after Salvo tells him that he was the one that messed around with their ammunition. Interestingly enough, Salvo's name is Italian and it means saved. One man, innocent of any wrongdoing, died so that 21 other people could go free. Church, this morning we have somebody that is far more worthy of worship, far more worthy of acceptance, far more worthy of praise this morning. Because not only did this innocent man that we find in Scripture die for you. He died for the sins of the entire world. What a wonderful demonstration of Jesus's love. What a wonderful demonstration of his power, and what a wonderful demonstration of his humility to submit to his Father's will.